The word gospel has been the most popular word in evangelicalism for many years now. It's a great word. You love it. I love it. And you know you can't go wrong with the gospel, right? Or can you? Is it possible for God's creation to take a good thing like the gospel and twist it into something that's not right? Well, you know the answer to that as well. It is possible. It doesn't matter what it is. We can take love and really mess it up. We can take anything and just make a mess of it, and we can do that with the gospel. And that's why I titled this podcast, When the Gospel Becomes the New Legalism. Thank you for joining me for the podcast. I am Rick Thomas. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. Perhaps you want to chat with us. We would love to chat with you. Go on our community forums and ask your question. We have a busy little community. People from all over the world are asking questions that are important. And if they are important to you, well, they are important to us, and we want to interact with you. Get your username and password. If you don't have one already, it's free. And then you can log in and ask your question, and and we can get after it. And it would be a joy to serve you. If you want to read this podcast, you're welcome to do that. All of our Your Daily Drive podcasts are in article formats. In fact, that's what I do with them. I write the article and then put it in an audio so you can either read it, listen to it, or do both. A lot of people do both, especially if you want to spend a little more time with it. You can listen to it in your car on the way to work or on the way back home. All of you who are heading to work today... I hope you have a great day at work, and then when you get home or maybe uh, on your break, you can read the article. It's the same title, When the Gospel Becomes the New Legalism. I suspect the Lord is pleased with this new reinvigorated focus on the gospel. Whenever his creation makes much of his son, by the way, Jesus Christ is a a synonym for the gospel. He is the great news. He is the good news. And so he is the most succinct definition of the gospel. And when God's creation makes much of the gospel, he's well pleased. The Father promised Jesus in Genesis 3.15, Jesus is going to crush the head of the old serpent. And then the gospel came to us in John 1.14, It says it like this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we will worship Him throughout eternity, as we read in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. I won't read all of that, but it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgment and true are true and just, for he has judged a great prostitute. And it goes on through three more verses as we worship the Savior. In Mark 1.11, it says, A voice came from heaven, the Father talking, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Yeah, there's no question that 
God is pleased with the gospel. He's pleased with his son, and he's pleased with us when we are making much of the son, not just making much of the son, but trying to live him out practically in our communities. Paul preached a pure gospel to the churches in Galatia, but it was not long before even the great apostle Peter, the one in the innermost circle of the Savior, messed it up, and Paul had stern thoughts about messing up the gospel. And this is where well, we have a severe warning here, because if Peter could distort the gospel, I'm sure the rest of us could put our twist on it too. Give me something good. And there is a chance that I will bend and reshape it to something wrong. And because of the popularization of the gospel in our Christian culture, there is the possibility of latching onto the language of the gospel while not fully understanding its uh, its application. Knowing the gospel will not insulate you from messing up the gospel. May we learn the lesson of Peter. And so there is a lot of gospel language. I am gospel this and gospel that. And of course, we're gospel-centered here and there and everywhere. We love that gospel language, and there's nothing wrong with it in that sense. But we must recognize that We can live with blinders on, and we might not see what we should see, and we could fall into the trap of Peter. The gospel itself, it is good. It is pure. But men are not good or pure apart from the propitiating grace of God. God's work in us is not a one-and-done kind of grace, by the way. We need his constant vigilance in our lives. And so we, re, we receive salvific grace, but we need sanctification grace because there is that possibility of messing up good things, even gospel community. If we're not daily submitting our lives to the transforming, uh, transforming power of the gospel in the context of loving friends who are willing to hold us accountable, we can be easily tempted to get out of line with the gospel. And that's what Paul said in Galatians 2. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul was rebuking Peter because he was out of line with the gospel. It reminds me when I first became a Christian, I became immersed in a legalistic Christian culture. God saved me when I was 25 years old. I was so new to religion that I did not know John 3.16. That's not such an anomaly, especially in our day, but back then in 1984, living on the buckle of the Bible belt in the southern part of the United States, You would think that everybody would know John 3.16. Today, not so much, but I didn't know it back then. Christianity was a foreign culture to me. Now, the town where I grew up was predominantly a Baptist culture. Virtually everybody was a Baptist, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And so it seemed logical for me to associate with 
the Baptist people that I had grown up with all my lives. Now, the particular group of Baptists that I was part of, they put the accent more on what you did for Christ than who you were in Christ. I was part of what you would call the, or what we call the fundamental uh, fundamentalist Baptist movement. We were independent fundam- fundamental Baptists is, is what we were, what they are uh, today as far as I know. And so I liked this group. It made sense to me, and I didn't know my left half of my right hand, and so I, I got with them. And I immediately began to do the works of Christianity while not consistently guarding my heart against internal problems like pride. That's a big one. It's the biggest of all, by the way, since all manifestations of sin come from this deep, dark cauldron of pride. And so I learned externalism. And I was sincere, by the way. I would not want you to read into that or hear into that in this case, that I wasn't sincere or genuine. I was. And my Baptist friends, the ones that I hung out, were very sincere and genuine. And so we did the works of religion. But the problem is we didn't know how to guard our hearts against internal problems like pride. Gospel transformation was not impacting and transforming my character. I loved God, and I desired to obey Him genuinely. I can't overstate that. But... I did not understand how the gospel applied to my heart as much as what it meant to my obedience. I knew what it meant to my obedience. I knew that I was supposed to do this, 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 and that, but I just didn't know how to live out the gospel internally. Now, in God's impeccable and merciful timing, he led me to a gospel-shaped community of believers This gospel community did not de-emphasize obedience at all. You see, some people believe the grace crowd or the gospel people marginalize obedience. I know there are some people within those communities that do marginalize obedience. Many of them react to the legalism that they came out of. There's two ditches here. The legalistic ditch that puts everything or puts the accent mark rather on obedience and They don't know how to deal with heart issues uh, competently for the most part in many cases. And then, of course, you have the grace people. Well, they jump into grace. It's all about grace and not so much about obedience. Well, the gospel people were not like that. They believe that gospel living demands both heart and life obedience. There's a connection there. Heart transformation first. Life obedience is the natural outworking of gospel transformation of the heart. And what I began to learn was the more you grow in your understanding of the gospel, your heart being affected by Christ, and the more you are motivated to live for him, practical obedience My growing gospel-shaped heart motivated me toward a greater desire to practically live for the Savior. Now, it wasn't just being obedient. Now, it wasn't just about holiness. It was about that, but it was motivated correctly out of a gospel-shaped heart. Refreshingly, my new gospel-centered community, with its strong emphasis on the cross, for example, 
It gave me a greater passion and a greater excitement for obedience. This season that I was in was one of the most transformative times of my life. And I look, I look back on my Fundamental Baptist days with appreciation for what I learned and the passion that they built in me to be obedient and to pursue holiness. But I also look back on this gospel-centered transformation time where God did a great work in my heart. But both communities had their flaws, and that's the point of this podcast. You see, all was not well in my new gospel-centered community. In time, I began to notice similar, similar patterns that were part of my old legalistic culture. It was a behavioristic lifestyle that started to manifest in my gospel-centered community. A new culture, gospel-centered, but the same old dichotomy being one thing in private while being something else in public. It was true, right in the middle of my gospel-centered community. Though there were many sincere people in my new gospel-centered community, there was also a culture of learned behavior. Gospel behavior presented well outwardly But on the inside of some of these people, there was insidious and imperceptible pride. And it was imperceptible if you didn't know what to look for or if you weren't close enough to it. I first noticed this when I was becoming more like the personalities of the leaders of the culture rather than becoming more like Jesus. When you start becoming more like your culture rather than being like Jesus, in the way that Jesus uniquely works in you, well, the short word for culture is cult. And I began to take on their good and also their bad habits. This effect can quickly happen to any person or to any group if there are no clear, objective, measurable, and accountable checks and balances. Ironically, it was just as easy to slide into gospel-centered behaviorism as it was to be a legalist, because gospel behaviors, well, they appear to be right. And so you're blindsided by it all, and you don't see it, and it does become easy. And though a gospel-centered life is the only way to go, this is apparent from the Savior's teaching and as seen in John fourteen six, He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so Christ-centered, gospel-centered, there is no other way to go. But we are never free from the danger of the best way becoming a shipwreck if our hearts are not humble, not transparent, and we're not honest with each other. And that's exactly what I experienced with some individuals within my new gospel-shaped community. Humility is not as elusive as you might think. God would not ask us to be humble while making it impossible to pursue, find, apply to our lives. God does not swing elusive carrots in front of us. He prefers humility from his children, and he's willing to give this critical gift. It's the most critical gift. Leadership ability and personality, they are not the essential gifts that determine God's favor. Humility is the key 
to his blessing. You remember the old woman in the temple that day? She had very little to give, not a lot of ability, not a lot of personality, but her heart was humble before God. The most affluent, the most famous, the most listened to people in the Savior's day were not the ones who captured his gaze. God does not accept us based on our gifting or our popularity. Humility, born out of faith in God, is what gets his attention. Now, this characteristic is the foundation of our real selves. It is easy to become enamored with what we see in people while not knowing who those people really are. It's easy to assume that what we see is what we get. In some of these situations, we don't want to know the truth about others. That's what our unwillingness to get into the dirtiness of a person's life seems to indicate. It goes like this, what I don't know won't hurt me. Well, that's a lie. If you're hanging out with people and you're starting to perceive some things, that is kind of cocking your head just a little bit and you're beginning to think that maybe there's something there that that needs to be explored. You can hold your assessment loosely. You can hold it with humility. You don't have to be condemnatory or judgmental, but you can't, should not bury your head in the sand. Now, while humility is the internal heart requirement for the gospel to flourish, the gospel can't flourish without humility, but the community is the external practical necessity for it to thrive. That's why you have a responsibility. Yes, the gospel will flourish in the humble heart, but the community must be cooperating. Now, there was a clear line of division in our gospel community. What went on private was hidden, and no one knew about it. The Bible and the Spirit are our best defenses for keeping in line with the gospel. Biblical submission to God and his word is wise and, and good. But God gives us more than those two things. He gives us a community to help maintain our gospel edge. Gospel-centered friends can be a significant means of grace if you are willing to have your life lovingly examined by those friends who care for you and they care for the glory of God. Now, no doubt Peter loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody is going to argue that point. No doubt he was transformed by the gospel, and there is no argument there. But Peter strayed from the gospel. He had the word of God. He had the spirit of God, but he strayed from the gospel. Heed the warning. Peter needed a friend to bring him back to the gospel that he loved. What he did not need was an echo chamber community that told him how right he was or wonderful he was or whatever it is they could have been saying. Paul was such a person. And what did Paul do? He rebuked his friend because his friend was perverting the gospel. There is no person living today who comes close to what Peter was as far as true greatness is concerned. 
He walked with the incarnate one and eventually gave his life for him. Though he denied Jesus before the crucifixion and denied him after his resurrection, only a handful of people come close to Peter's experience with the Savior and his usefulness in God's story. But Peter distorted the gospel. I think we can safely conclude that you and I have the potential of twisting the gospel too. Do you have a friend like Paul? Someone with courage, grace, compassion? Someone willing to help you walk in line with the gospel? How open are you to those who are willing to speak into your life? These kinds of reciprocal relationships don't happen by chance. For me, this is the litmus test of my closest relationships. I have a lot of friends in the biggest and vaguest use of that word, including social media. But I must have folks caring for me. And I want to associate with those who will allow me to speak into their lives. And I realize this is not for everybody. There's a lot of people who just don't want you speaking into their lives, which is sad. But the effect of not doing this can cause generational dysfunction. You can ruin your children's lives and their children's lives. And apart from the grace of God, they will stay dysfunctional if God doesn't impose himself on those that you have affected because of your unwillingness to walk out humility. If you're looking for gospel-centered friends, I want to share with you some tips that will help you think about how to pray for, how to, ch- how to change, and what to pursue. Here are six considerations. Number one, you must want to live out the gospel practically. Two, you must know you can distort the gospel practically. Number three, you must sense your need for help. Four, you must pursue others, appealing to them to help you. You have to appeal to them. I say it this way. If you want to be held accountable, then you have to hold people accountable to hold you accountable, or you will not be held accountable. Number five, you must create a context that invites others to speak into your life. And number six, you must assume this will happen this you, you must not assume, rather, that this will happen without your insistence. Now, this list, these six things that I've just shared with you, could be a means of grace that will keep you practically living in the power of the gospel for years to come. I would love for you to get on the article here, go through this list again, and honestly assess yourself. The title of the article is, When the Gospel Becomes the New Legalism. Let me ask you, as you listen to those six things that I shared with you, how are you doing? Will you ask someone to assess you in the areas listed? Be so daring. Be so bold. Take these six things and ask it. You'll find out what kind of friend you have. One, if you're if you have enough grace and courage to ask, and if they have enough grace and courage to respond accurately according to how they perceive you. So how are you doing? Will you ask someone to assess you? Number three, do you believe you are capable of distorting the gospel? 
I can't overemphasize the importance of these ideas. If you can find a group of friends who are sincere about these issues, you are poised to dig a little deeper as you seek to build your gospel community. Now, I want to give you a list of questions. These are the ones that Lucia and I and our inner circle of friends talk about when we get together. Our goal, our hope, our prayer are not to know the gospel only. In word only is popular. It's what we're supposed to preface everything we say. It's the gospel. I'm gospel-centered. But we want to authentically and practically be transformed by that gospel. Here are five questions that I want you to consider. Number one, are you appropriately revealing the secrets of your life within a context of friends? Number two, are you approachable? Number three, are you teachable? Number four, are you correctable? Number five, do you share some of your life but hide the stuff that matters? This last question that I just asked is a way to present humility while hiding it in reality by not being humble at all. That's the person who shares some of their life while hiding the stuff that matters. It's one of the liabilities of our ministry. I've had more than one person come to our ministry and learn how we do ministry and read our articles and learn the language and they began to parrot the language and they people are in may be impressed with them, and it comes across as presented humility. But the truth is they're hiding deceit. They're hiding lies. They're not humble at all. This problem is the warning and the point of this podcast, and it's what I ran into in my gospel community. Some of the leaders lived double lives, and the congregation had no clue what went on behind the scenes and still don't to this day. And so the first set of questions that I just ask you, are you appropriately revealing secrets? Are you approachable, teachable, correctable? Do you share some of your life, but you hide the stuff that matters? That was for you. I want to give you a second set of questions It's a way that you can serve your friends. If you want to live out the gospel authentically, you'll need the grace and courage of Paul. Here you go. Are you afraid to approach those within your sphere of influence regarding what you believe you see in them? Number two, if you approach them and they refuse to hear you, are you willing to take it to another level? Wife, If your husband will not listen to your appeals, are you willing to take it to another level? Husband, number four, are you willing to serve your wife in a similar fashion? Number five, do you pursue your friends the way Paul sought Peter? If King David or Peter, two of the most gifted men in the Bible, full of passion for God, if they could fall because of pride, don't you think you and I can easily do the same. Don't assume your pastor has it all together. Don't assume your small group leader has it all together. Don't assume your spouse has it all together. Don't assume your evangelical heroes have it all together. Don't assume those you hang with are not struggling. And by all all means, don't assume you've got it together. The doctrine of sin informs us otherwise. 
while none of us want to be cynical and suspicious of others, we don't want to walk around that way. Don't do that. That would be sinful. But God has called us to a loving and courageous discernment. There is a difference between being discerning, walking in wisdom, and being suspicious and cynical of people. Let me finish this podcast with two sober warnings. The first one is, it would be superfluous to ask a person if they are struggling with sin. There's no point to ask that question. We should ask them, how can we serve them in their struggle with sin? You see, imperfection is a given. It's an assumption. You struggle, I struggle, everyone struggles. That's why I said it's superfluous to ask a person if they're struggling with sin. Go ahead and jump that link in the chain and ask them how you can serve them in whatever struggle they may have in their life right now. Do not assume otherwise, no matter how gifted you think someone is. The second sober warning, no matter how right we are or how right we think we are, God is not afraid to take us down. If we are proud men or women, may we learn the lesson. God will not compete with us. We must genuinely humble ourselves before our maker and before each other. The title of the podcast is When the Gospel Becomes the New Legalism. We learn the gospel language. We learn the words. We learn the behaviors. But our hearts are far from the things that we present to others If you want to talk about this, I would love to chat with you. Get on our forums, our free community forums to anyone, our private forums for our supporting community. Ask your questions and let's talk about this. Thanks for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.